Good to be here today. Good to be back with you guys. Ezra chapter 1 is where we're starting today. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you can open up with us. If not, you can look right here on the screen. Uh, we love the Word of God. Everything we do is based upon the Word of God. It's our foundation. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you a Bible. We have them all the time out there on that back table. But please, we want to get the Word of God in people's hands. Uh, we know it is living and active. It's powerful. It's transformative. Uh, when we begin to interact with the Word of God, it changes us. It cuts us up from the inside out and transforms us. So we want to get the Word into people's hands, not just scrolling through your phone. It's fine if you're on your phone, but there's just something different. When you get when you get the book in your hand and you start to go through it and you start seeing and highlighting and underlining and you start interacting with his word, you'll find it's living and active and he's got things to say to you. Chapter one, verse one in Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. If you go back, you can find that prophet Jeremiah. You can find the prophet Jeremiah in this prophecy that he'd given years before. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. God stirs people's hearts. This wasn't, this wasn't a Jewish king. At this time, the, the Jewish people, they were in exile. They had gone astray from God's word and the prophets had warned them, if you step outside of God's word, if you walk in disobedience to what my word says, you will be exiled to a foreign country. And that's what happened to the Jewish people. They walked in disobedience to his word. And when we step outside of the boundaries of his word, we step outside of his hand of protection and blessing on our lives. They had stepped outside of his word and walked in disobedience. And so now they had become slaves in a foreign country. They'd become exiles. But here's what happens. Because God stirs this foreign king's heart. He's not from the line of David. He's not Jewish. He's not one of God's people. But it doesn't matter. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He was powerful. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem. The temple had been torn down and destroyed. The temple that David wanted to build but wasn't allowed to, and his son Solomon was given the task, and it was mighty and renowned throughout the world. It was torn down and destroyed. Because the people had walked in disobedience. But now God has stirred up another king from another nation to build the temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord. The God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found. Let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Wherever the remnant is found, there was still a remnant. There was still a group remaining. There can't be a revival without a remnant. 
I'm sure many of them thought, it's done, it's over, we're never going back. And all of a sudden, there's a revival happening. They're being sent back to build the temple again. There can't be a revival without a remnant. Sometimes it feels like we're all alone. You look around this world and you see what's going on and you see what's being pushed. And as a believer, you begin to believe what the world is saying. Nobody thinks the way you think. Nobody agrees with the words of your God. It's foolish to continue following him. But we keep holding on because we know where there's a remnant, there can always be a revival. It might feel like you're alone. It might feel like you're small. It might feel like you're insignificant. Wherever you're placed in this world, but you're a part of the remnant. And where there's a remnant, there can be a revival. Then God, verse 5, then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary gifts. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken the articles from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and he had placed them in the temple of his gods foreign gods. Cyrus directed Mithridath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Shezbazar, the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. Go on here, chapter 3 in Ezra. Chapter 3, verse 1. When they get back, they evaluate, they're looking around, they're saying, what, what, what do we do first? Chapter 3, verse 1. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined the fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shelatel. That sounds right. I mean, I'm just saying it so fast you don't know if I'm pronouncing it right or not. That's my, that's my trick. Now you know my trick. Son of Shilatil, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. Before they rebuild the temple, they start with the altar. Before we rebuild the temple, we have to start with the altar. We need a return to the altar. The church needs to return to the altar first before he can rebuild the temple. We don't have a great understanding of the altar. I know I don't. I, I grew up in a church where I, I had no clue about the altar. We didn't talk about the altar. But the more I see it in Scripture, the more I want to know. Because I see it matters to God. And if it matters to God, it should matter to us. They started with the altar before they began to rebuild the temple. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. 
Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They began to practice and sacrifice the way it was prescribed in God's word. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the festival of shelters began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Before they started with the temple, they started with the altar. We are living sacrifices. Our lives should be living sacrifices. We should lay down everything at the altar. So when we come into worship, the very first thing our eyes should be directed to, our minds, our hearts, everything within us should be the altar. What do I need to lay down today? What have I been holding on to? What have I been clinging to that I refuse to let go of and I refuse to offer up to him today. We are living sacrifices and we lay our lives down on the altar. For some of us, it's our pride. When we walk into worship, we have to lay our pride down on the altar. When we bow in worship, We're dying to ourselves and focusing our hearts and our minds on him. When we lift our hands in worship, we are dying to ourselves. We are laying our pride and everything within us that desires to be worshipped, we're laying it on the altar and we're choosing to worship him instead. That's why when we worship, we raise our hands. That's why when we worship, we bow to our knees. That's why when we worship, we jump and we dance and we sing without care because we are laying our lives down for him. It's a living sacrifice for him. But the church today, it, it's hard, right? Like you go into church and there's this pressure to look a certain way, act a certain way, to just kind of stand there and just, you don't want to stand out. You, you don't want to look weird. You don't want to look strange. But when your life is a living sacrifice, it's going to look different from the rest of the world. And so we lay it all down on the altar for him when we step in. And we lay it all down on the altar for him every day throughout the week. And we die to ourselves and we live for Christ. So before we can build the temple, we have to return to the altar. Go on there to verse 10 in chapter 3. They began working on the temple. And when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and they took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, he wrote some of the Psalms, they clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord. That's why we got drums. 
We're going to clash our cymbals every Sunday. We're going to praise the Lord. We'll get loud. We'll get crazy. We'll have moments where we'll step back and we'll reflect. And whatever we do, we come and we bring it all to him. Our praise and our worship, it's a sacrifice. It is to bring glory to him. It's not about us. And so they were praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. They shouted, he is so good, his faithful love for Israel endures forever. We're we're grafted into Israel. Through Christ, just so you know, when we see Israel, we are grafted in. We are adopted into the family. His faithful love for Israel, for his church, it endures forever. But many of the older priests, the Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple, there were still some around that had seen the first temple. They knew what it looked like. They knew the glory and splendor and the care that it was built with. When they, when they saw this in this moment, they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. There's moments where you're going to come into church on a Sunday and there's going to be weeping, and there's going to be shouts of joy. We're all coming in from a different season. We're all coming in from a different place. And so when we're coming in here on a Sunday, you're going to see people jumping and shouting for joy, and you're going to see people weeping, and you're going to see people crying and broken at the cross. Both are beautiful. It was sad for them to remember what the temple had been, But for those who hadn't seen the temple, for them to see the beginning of a new foundation of a revival, that was exciting. They were cheering that. They were in celebration for that. So there's moments where it might be sad for you to see what the church has come to in our land, in our world. But then you can also step back and you can see the seeds of revival and what's growing. You can see what's been planted, and you can see what God is beginning to stir and bring growth to. That's what I see here at Revival. You can see the seeds beginning to grow and the flame beginning to spread. He's working and he's moving. Ezra chapter 7. I'm just giving us a a brief overview here. Ezra chapter 7. Verse 1. Many years later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. He was the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Heteb. Man, this is like so many sons of. I was going to skip on down there. All the way down to son of Aaron, the high priest. All the way back to the days of Moses. This was his line. This was his lineage. The lineage matters. The bloodline mattered. 
This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. Sometimes we have to remember that. Sometimes we have to remember that we are walking, if we're walking with him, if we're walking in step with him, his hand is on us. Sometimes we walk in fear in this world and we don't even ask because we're afraid to get told no or no, nah, that, that can't happen. But when you remember who you are, not just who you are, but whose you are and whose hand is on your life, it gives you a different kind of confidence and authority to walk through in this world. Ezra, he knew, he understood God's hand was on him. Some of the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, they traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived at Jerusalem on August 4th, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. If you're looking at your life right now and you feel like God's hand isn't on it. It's fallen apart all around me constantly. Everything I try to do goes wrong. Everything I want, everything I desire, it seems to fail before it can even get started whether it's relationships, whether it's your work, whether it's your finances, and you just, all you see is everything around you collapsing and nothing going right. Look what it says about Ezra. If you want to walk in his grace, are you walking in his word? If you want to walk in that confidence, knowing his hand is on you everywhere you go, are you determined like Ezra, to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel? Are you determined to go and teach those decrees and regulations today to anyone and everyone you come into contact with? Are you determined to teach those decrees and regulations to your kids as you raise up your family? When we walk in his ways... And when we are determined to teach those around us, those that we've been given authority over, to walk in those ways, his hand is on us. His hand is on our lives. We need a new generation of Ezra's. We need to raise up a new generation of Ezra's that's committed to studying his word because we know that his word is a light upon our path. We know that his word is not a burden, but it's a blessing. That's why we talk about the word. That's why we soak in the word. That's why we spend time in the word because the more we begin to learn it and understand it and place it within our hearts, it changes everything about our lives. So when we talk about boundaries, there's so many things that we look at in his word and we think, oh, that's a burden. No, 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 it's a blessing. Because his word, 
It's a boundary for our lives. And when we step outside of the boundary, when we step outside of his word, there's no blessing, there's no protection, there's no grace. We're walking in disobedience. We've opened ourselves up to the attack of the enemy. But we've forgotten that. Jesus showed us grace on the cross and forgiveness of our sins so that we can experience salvation. We're not saved by walking in his word, but we are blessed by walking in his word. We're saved by the blood of the cross. We're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. That's what we are saved by. As we begin to listen and walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit's voice in our lives, and we begin to soak in his word and to love it and to live it out and to teach it to those around us. If you're a family, if you have kids, to teach these decrees and his word to your kids, to, you're gonna see. You don't have to walk the way the world is walking with a burden on their back. You can walk in blessing and freedom because his way is just better than anything else the world can offer. The hand of God was on Ezra's life because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord, to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. We want to walk in those decrees and regulations today. Not because we have to, but because we desire to walk with God's hand on our lives, guiding us every step of the way forward. So even in the darkest moments, we can know without a doubt he's still, he's, he's still there with us and his hand is on our lives. Ezra 9, 1 through 6. When these things had been done, the Jewish leaders they came to me and said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and the Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land. They've taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For the men of Israel had married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. This is a simple command that God's given us. And it still applies today. To be equally yoked means that if you're going to step into a marriage covenant, it doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter where they're from, what their skin color is. That doesn't matter. That's not what God is saying here. It matters who they worship. If they don't worship the Lord, your God, if they don't worship Yahweh, don't be yoked with them. Don't step into a covenant with them. That is one of the most simple things, one of the most simple, simple decrees and regulations from God's word that we can teach our kids and it will save their lives. It will. Because when you're unequally yoked, you're in hell. It is. It is a living hell. You can ask anybody that is unequally yoked right now. They will tell you it's one of the hardest things that they ever stepped into. 
It's a burden. But when you are equally yoked and you are running the same race and you're running in the same direction and you're chasing after God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, there's a blessing there like nothing else. You're there to pick each other up when you fall. You're there to encourage each other. You're there to love on each other, to cheer each other on, to push each other, to keep running faster and farther in the direction that God has called you to. But if you're trying to run the race with somebody that's unequally yoked, with somebody that's running the opposite direction, it's going to feel like you're going nowhere. It's not a blessing, it's a burden. Worship team, I'll invite you up as we get ready to close out here. Ezra 9, verse 7. Here's Ezra's prayer. Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We've been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced just as we are today. But now we have been given a brief moment of grace. For the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He's given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from slavery. For we were slaves. But in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Some of you, you feel like that right now. You feel trapped. You feel like a slave in what you're in. You feel stuck like there is no way out. But if you repent, if you change your mind from what the world has taught you and you begin to believe and live out what his word teaches, there's grace. There's freedom from slavery. He caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. He's reviving us today so that the temple could be rebuilt. We are living temples of the Holy Spirit today. And he's given us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That was the other thing they did. They rebuilt the altar, and then they rebuilt the temple, and then they rebuilt the wall and the gates around the city. Because that was where things went wrong. They started to let anything and everything in through the gates, in past the wall. They began to mix the gods of this world with Yahweh. And he said, there shall be no other gods. Worship the Lord your God. But that was what they did. When they began to intermarry and bring in these other peoples, these other peoples brought in their gods and their worship and their sacrifices. 
And they were unclean. They were detestable in the sight of the Lord. And so today we have to be reminded that for us to remain a temple for His Holy Spirit, it's okay for us to have a wall. It's okay for us to have a gate and to set up boundaries from what this world wants to try to sneak in. There are things that this world is going to tell you, oh, you can have this and Yahweh. You can have all these things and serve the Lord your God. No, no, no. We don't intermix with the gods of this world. We serve him and him alone. And so if there's something today that you know the Holy Spirit is putting on you, and he's telling you, you've brought this into the temple and it doesn't belong here, it's unclean, it's unholy, lay it on the altar today, sacrifice it today, build the wall, build a boundary. Let his word be a boundary of protection in your life, not a burden. And now... Oh, our God, what can we say after all this? For once again, we have abandoned your commands. Accept it. Own it. Confess it. If he's putting that on you today, confess it. Confess to each other. It says in God's word that there is healing that comes when we confess to each other in James. But we keep trying to hold everything in and deal with it on our own. But if we would confess to each other, there would be healing. Not just of our souls, but of our physical body. If you've come in here today and you're struggling with your health, you're struggling with some kind of sickness, I I would tell you, ask the Holy Spirit. If there's something that he wants to shine a light on in this moment, ask him to reveal it to you and find somebody in this moment to confess to. Because we're scared of judgment and confession, but judgment isn't going to come. All you're going to find is hope and healing and encouragement and love from the church. That's what you're going to find in the church. And you're going to find as you bring it out of the darkness and into the light, there is healing that takes place physically and spiritually. You can walk in freedom today. You don't have to let it be a sickness and a burden on you anymore. Your servants, the prophets, they warned us when they said, the land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces and you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. You're setting up a legacy for generations to come when you walk in obedience to his word. When you teach your children to walk in his commandments, to be equally yoked with other believers, The marriage covenant is holy, but we've taken it lightly in our world. I just performed a wedding yesterday. And I I, I won't perform a wedding if I know that one's a believer and one's not. I've never done it. I won't do it. Because I want them to walk 
in the blessing that God's promised. I want them to walk in the fullness of what his word has for them. Verse 13, now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt, but we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? O Lord, our God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant. Though in such a condition, none of us can stand in your presence. We confess today who we are. We confess today what we've done. And we lay our lives down as living sacrifices to him. If you need to repent, if you need to turn back, if you need to turn back to his word, to step back inside of the boundaries he's prescribed for your life, this is a day you can do that. You can come to the altar. You can come right up here. You can ask for prayer. You can confess. You can bring whatever you got and lay it at the foot of the cross today in this moment and choose to step back into the land of his blessings. I'm not talking about Israel. I'm talking about his word. His word is the new boundary for our life. To repent and turn back to him and walk in the fullness he's promised. The fullness.